Good morning. How are we all this morning? Awesome. Uh, Joe made it really hard. He blocked my way. He made it unapproachable. He's like, we're going to see like the dark cloud that we're going to see. Made it unapproachable. No. Anyway, it's good to come here and preach my final sermon at this church for all, uh, this year. So let us pray as we come to know this wonderful God. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have made us and you have called us to know you. We ask this morning, Father, as we hear this word from you, as you speak to your people that you saved in the wilderness, help us understand how that applies to us. Help us to know how it is uh, we approach you and the great grace that you have given us through Jesus Christ that we can come to you without fear or trembling knowing just how much you have done for us in Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When talking about God with friends or family, you may have heard this question. I certainly have. If there is a God, why are there so many different religions? Shouldn't God make himself clear? Should he not reveal himself plainly so that we can know him? It is a question that I've heard so many times and there is a certain logic to the question if there is a god why can't he speak plainly why can't he make himself clear is he dumb is he stupid is he unable but the hidden assumption behind the question is this that people want to know god that we want to know the true god that if god speaks to us that we would listen to him People don't ask if that is true of themselves. They don't ask if they want to know the true and living God. Now, a major theme of the book of Exodus is coming to know the God of all creation. What God did to and through Pharaoh and bringing his people to himself revealed himself to his creation. It made himself known to humanity. Now, today, as we watch God we'll see as he prepares to speak to his saved people. And as we watch God prepare to speak to his people, we'll see some of the difficulties that must be overcome for a holy God to speak and relate and be in the presence of an unholy people. Now, over this series, we've watched God reveal himself in many different ways. First, he delivered uh, Israel out of Egypt by destroying the gods of Egypt and destroying Egypt itself. Last week we came to uh, chapter 18 and we saw Jephro, the, well, the person who's outside of Israel, come and offer sacrifices as he gave, himself, uh, gave his life by sacrificing to God and being faithful in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness in the previous chapters. But the big point that started at the whole book that really is key to understanding this passage really happened in chapter 3, verse 12, when God said to Moses, and God said, I will be with you, Moses, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The mountain that they come to today is the very mountain that God had said to Moses, when you come here, 
you will know that I have sent you. You will know that all these things that have been done have been done in my name, that I am the one who did it, and you will know me. And so the passage opens with the people at the foot of the mountain. Verse 1, in the third month, from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They travelled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there at the front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain. Israel has arrived at Mount Sinai to listen to their saviour, to listen to their deliverer at this mountain that God promised Moses would be the sign, the evidence that God had sent him. Israel will come to know their creator. He will formalise his relationship with Israel through a covenant, through a promise. This is pivotal to the history of the nation. God formalises his relationship with them and he puts some conditions around them. We read in verse 4. You have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will listen carefully to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Here is the foundation of God's relationship. Here is the bedrock, really, of the nation's formation. God begins his covenant with a statement about what Israel has witnessed. You have seen what I did. You know, Israel, my acts. You know, Israel, my power. God doesn't begin by telling you, the Israelites, what they need to do for him. Instead, what God does is remind them of what he has done for them already, how God has judged Pharaoh and Egypt and spared them, how he has provided for them throughout the journey, even as they have grumbled against him. God tells the Israelites these things as a reminder of his grace towards them. God has cared for them, as he says, brought them to himself on eagle's wings. And I think the idea of eagle's wings here is that they have come to this mountain untouched by their enemies. That is in complete safety. The foundation of God's covenant with his people is his grace towards them. That is the pattern of God's relationship with his people then and it is the pattern of God's relationship with his people now. Our relationship with God starts with his grace towards us this is a missable point but it is something that we need to remember about god the god of the old testament is the same as the god of the new testament the pattern of relationship is exactly the exactly the same our relationship with god begins with god's grace towards us in jesus christ god's grace should remind us that God loves us and God cares for us. God has only the best intentions for his people. This pattern of relationship is a constant with God. He, in his graciousness 
towards his people is always calling on us to respond to him because he is gracious. And that's where he begins. He begins with grace. And after reminding the people of his grace, which is the foundation of the relationship, then God commands the Israelites to listen carefully to him so that they will keep their covenant with him. That is, if they keep God's good and gracious promises, then they will continue to receive God's grace. If they listen to him, then they will be a treasured possession from all the nations of the world. God is going to continue to be gracious for them. The idea here being is that they will be a special treasure. They'll be like the crown jewels, the most cared for, sacred object of all the peoples of the world. Something that a king puts and hides. Can you imagine like the crown jewels in uh, the tower of the crown jewels in the Tower of England. They are in a special place. They are looked after. They are cared for. No one can touch them. No one can steal them. Even though they're well seen by everybody, they are well kept and safe so they cannot be stolen. That is God's relationship to the people of Israel. They are his crown jewels. They are his special people that he keeps and protects and makes sure that nobody steals from. And that is what God is saying he will do for them. Secondly, he will give them a role. Israel will be a holy priesthood. They will be set aside to represent God to the world. They will be God's mediators to the rest of the world. People will come to know God through them. And it's not hard for Israel to be this. All they have to do to be this treasured possession, to be this holy priesthood, is listen and respond to God. If they remain in his word, then they will be this treasured possession. Then they will be this holy priesthood. They will become a nation of priests like Moses. They will act as mediators between God and the nations. It is an abundance of grace that God is planning to give to them. The main point of the book of Exodus is that people know God. Everything God is doing in this book is about revealing himself to humanity. In Israel's great deliverance, God is making himself known. But the unspoken lesson for Israel and for us to learn is for Israel's deliverance and salvation, it came through Yahweh's judgment, God's judgment of Egypt and its false gods. You can look at Egypt and Pharaoh and say, well, they deserved it. They did evil things. But when you get to Israel's behaviour and whinging in the desert, you can think, well... How are they going to relate with God? How is a holy God going to get on with them? How are they any different? They haven't been listening to God. Even though God has been gracious over and over and over again, they have been failing to listen. If God judged Egypt, what is he going to do to Israel? And this is the tension that will rest in the rest of the book of um, 
Exodus and indeed the whole Bible. How can a holy God relate to an unholy people? Well, God calls Moses up the mountain to explain how he will interact. In verse 12, put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Basically here, what God is showing the people is that he is an unapproachable God, that Israel cannot come into God's presence. That is a holy God cannot be in the presence of an unholy people. Man's sinfulness means that God who is perfectly just cannot simply sweep our sins under the carpet or their sins under the carpet. In a lot of ways, the anomaly of the book of Exodus isn't so much that God judged Egypt but that God saved Israel for they are just as sinful and wicked as the Egyptians. Egypt was full of idolatry. It was a pagan nation. It was a wicked nation. And it was represented in the way their pharaoh and the religions of the world treated the people. They deserved God's judgment. But as you watch Israel as they come out of Egypt, they're not much better, if better at all. As they were a sinful people, many of them kept the foreign gods of Egypt. There was constant grumbling against God and their desire to return to Egypt showed that they were no better than the Egyptians themselves. Though God will come down and meet this people, what God does and says to Moses is set a barrier between us, myself and the people. This distance is symbolised in the dense cloud, this barrier which will hide God from the people. They must not pierce that cloud and they must not come into direct God's direct presence. God is still hidden from the people. And then God says to Moses, put a very clear boundary between the people and his presence. And to come and break that boundary or transgress that boundary means they must die. God is completely unapproachable. Israel must not break into the presence of God or into the cloud, if you break that command, then no one can even kill you by their hand or sword, lest they become like those who are on the mountain. No, instead they are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Nothing can come into contact with God. Even the animals must die. Here is God's special nation, the nation he has promised to make his most treasured possession, his crown jewels, his holy priesthood. Yet if they come into contact with God and try to relate with him within his presence, they will die. You can see the tension of the passage. Here is Israel. They are meant to reflect God in the world, to be his holy priests, yet they cannot come into his presence lest they die. That is the tension of the whole Bible. How can an unholy man ever relate 
to a purely perfect holy God. It is represented here in the nation's inability to even step upon the mountain. But that's not the only tension in the passage. As I said at the start of this talk, the book of Exodus is about knowing the unknown God. God reveals his name to his people. He reveals his relationship and desire to be faithful to the promises he has made to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. He has shown his power through delivering Israel and being their conqueror, being the great conqueror of the only known superpower of the world at this stage. And even though he has done all these things for Israel, he is still largely unknown by his people. And this is where the relevance of God coming down in a dense cloud has a further symbolism. The dense cloud isn't so much covering up God's holiness. Instead, what it does is hide God from Israel's view. God remains in darkness to show Israel that he is still largely unknown to them that though they, of all the nations, have a special relationship with God, that they still have a long way to go for, for them to know God and to relate to him as he would like. The darkness and the thickness of the cloud is a symbol, really, and a sign of their ignorance of God. always find it so interesting and baffling about people as they claim to know God. I always hear people say, I can't believe God is like whatever. Or I can't imagine God would do this. Or God would do that. One of my personal favourites, God accepts us for who we are. People make up all these things about who they know God is or what he is like. But when you push into what they are really saying, you soon realise that what they're saying about God is simply a reflection of who they are, of what they like. They just don't realise it. I find it amazing when people talk like this. Why do you think, and this is my question, why do you think you can work out God for yourself? How do you think that you can figure out the God of all creation by yourself? Don't you understand that what you're saying is this is what I say God should be like? Don't you realise that you are telling the creator of the universe who he should be? And I think, oh, good luck with that one. That's not going to work. It amazes me that people think like this. And it is an absolutely insane truth that people continue to do this. And then I realise something about myself that I used to do exactly the same thing. I used to say and think in exactly the same stupid ways. We cannot tell God what he should be like. We cannot tell God what he should do or how he should relate to us. Instead, we are totally dependent upon God's grace to show us and tell us how we need to relate to him, how we can pierce the cloud of our ignorance to know who God is. We need someone to pierce that cloud for us. And there is someone in the passage who does this. It is Moses. Moses is God's chosen servant who reveals God to his people. That's what Moses is set aside to do. And just as a quick side note, 
you may have noticed that instruction to maintain sexual abstinence until God's arrival. Moses' command sort of, it sort of comes out of nowhere. But Moses' job is to prepare the people for God's revelation. God will reveal himself later in the holiness code about how the people are to relate in terms of all kind of bodily emissions. And those will be detailed in the book of Leviticus. And there are all kinds of theories as to why Moses prohibits sex for these days, but no one knows for sure. But the big thing is here, Moses isn't saying sex is bad because God created it. What Moses is saying here is, this is what you need to do to relate to God. This is what you need to do so as when God comes into our presence, you remain holy. Moses is piercing the cloud for us. Moses is a, the special servant we need to, or they needed to listen to, so as to know God and know how to approach him and how to relate to him. Doing as Moses says prepares the people to respond to God's word and be holy. That is the big point of this section. Moses, you need to listen to Moses, Israel. Moses is your representative to me. And so God comes in verse 16. On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud blast from, the, from a ram's horn, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the, in the thunder. The only person who is able to pierce the cloud is Moses. Later, God will call Moses to bring the priests with him, but it is Moses who acts as the mediator. God speaks to his special servant to reveal who he is to his people. God calls Moses up the mountain to himself and instructs Moses on what he needs to tell the people how they should act. Up and the up and down movement is the idea of going up to God to hear God in heaven and then coming down to the people to reveal what God has said. Moses is God's special servant sent by God to pierce the cloud of Israel's ignorance. As I read it, I feel a bit for Moses. Remember, this is the same guy who's so old he couldn't hold his stick up for a day when Israel was fighting the Amalekites. And yet God has Moses hiking up and down the mountain. It's like, I hope you didn't skip leg day, Moses. But jokes aside, the point is God calls Moses to himself and reveals himself to Moses. And then Moses goes down to the people and tells the people, what they need to hear. And when God speaks to Moses from the cloud, when God comes closest to the people, he answers Moses so that the people will know that God will reveal himself through Moses. He does this so that the people will listen carefully to Moses and do as he says because he 
has this special relationship with God. And the whole encounter terrifies the people. It is a terrifying sight. You can imagine all that smoke, all that uh, thunder, all that fire coming up from the mountain. You would think, how could we ever approach, how could we ever know this God? And God is saying, through my special servant. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out in anger against them. The whole point of the exercise was to terrify the people and make them aware of just how dangerous it was to approach this holy God. Here is this terrifying God of whom any approach without his sanction will meet and lead to death. Our God is not a God to be trifled with. He takes his holiness very, very seriously. And it should make us, seeing how seriously God takes his holiness, it should make us think about how casually we can treat God, how we can act towards God. We serve and have been called by the same holy God. The God who appeared to Moses and the Israelites is the same we have been called to serve today. We might be tempted to think, well, that was just the Old Testament God. God is not like that now. Yes, he is. He's exactly like that. He does not change. He is still holy. His holiness makes him still unapproachable by an unholy people. He is still just as horrified and angered by man's sin. Why don't we feel terrified about approaching this holy God? Why? Because of Jesus. See, as we look at this, what we should realise is that God's holiness makes him just as unapproachable. That we feel so comfortable calling God our Heavenly Father is not because God has changed, but it is because of what Jesus, God's true special servant, has done for us. This is where our passage in Hebrews is so important. For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling it with fear. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of the righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. The big difference between us and Israel is not time. It is the cross. The reason we feel so comfortable coming and talking about God, feel so comfortable being in God's presence, is because we know that God's fearsome judgment against sin has been dealt with in Jesus. That is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Jesus has made such a difference to our experience of God that we come to God without fear of judgment or fear of his anger. We know that our sin has been completely dealt with and that Jesus has taken away our ignorance of God. That we can know God and know the salvation that he has won for us is all on account of what Jesus has done, God's true special servant. The blood that speaks a better word than Abel's is Jesus' blood that doesn't cry out for revenge, but instead is the vehicle and word of God's grace to pay for our sins. The passage is about teaching Israel to look for a way to pierce their cloud of ignorance. And it will be revealed later in the book that Moses will not be truly able to do this, that God is setting up Israel to find Jesus as the true holy servant of God the one who could approach God and bring people into God's heavenly presence, not to a mountain that could be touched. No, to God's heavenly mountain, the mountain where we can only go by the blood of Jesus. This passage is about finding Jesus. That is the true joy of the passage for us, that we know Jesus and his salvation, And are not left wondering how a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. For the answer is through the death and resurrection of God's Son, our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. As we wrap up this series and we come into Christmas, what a great thing to remember that we serve Jesus who is God's special servant, who has come into the world to reveal God to us. How we can take this great news of Jesus and of the pure joy we can have in knowing God, our Saviour. God has not appeared to us in a fiery furnace, but in a meek lamb who has paid for our sins. What a great blessing we have in Jesus. Let's never take for granted who he is, what he has done. Let us listen to our truant servant and invite others to know this God, that we might serve him, that we might be his treasured possession, that we might be a nation of priests and that all the world might know their God, Jesus Christ, their saviour and their hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he reveals who you are to us, that he has taken away your terrible judgment for sin, that you have made us a special people, a holy people. Help us, Father, to constantly remember that it is not through our works but through what you have done through your Son that we can know you and feel safe coming before you. 
Help us to trust Jesus all the days of our life for his sake and for his glory. Amen.